Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by James Grew, owner and director of the Building Design Workshop, a multi-skilled consultancy that promotes sustainable architecture and more. James, hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Now, normally we get directly into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we should start there. How has this affected your business? It's been quite strange. Um, initially, obviously, I was concerned, like many other people, that there would be a fall off in, in workload. Um, but I, I mean, I sort of retrenched somewhat over the last few years as I've done my main activity which was a mainstream practice some years ago I've sort of taken a a slightly more relaxed view about about my practice now and in fact what happened was I started to get busier Uh, a lot of people I think working from home realized they needed to uh, adapt their homes extend their homes convert their homes Um, and as a result I started to get very busy in fact um possibly busier than I've been in quite some time. So I can't say that the uh, the lockdown did me any harm at all, to be honest. How do you feel uh, that lockdown, uh, that the lockdowns and the virus in general will affect trends in architecture going forward? I think it inevitably will affect the normal the normal procedures, which is any, any practice of a, of a reasonable size to be working from an office um, normally, they, uh, now, of course, the COVID and the uncertainty is attached to social distancing and general proximity of, um, of, of work and how to tra- travel into work, I think will affect it. And I think people's sort of attitudes from now on will definitely change. More, more people will work from home. Um, conferences will be done via Zoom. Uh, I think and my, my colleague, too, I stay in touch with is still practicing in office environments. So they're pretty much finding how isolated it's become and how difficult it's become. And at the moment, still a massive amount of uncertainty as to what's going to happen. How do you feel uh, that the legacy of COVID will affect design in particular and the way that buildings are built and laid out? It shouldn't really affect the design process. Um, Not stylistically in any way? Uh, Like open plan offices, for for example. Well, yeah, the the nature of the end use, I think, is going to be quite interesting because offices, we could finish up with a lot of empty offices, particularly in city centres, and Mm. those offices may well be converted into into other uses, so there could be a, there could be a plus in so far as other uses may turn out to be uh, the benefit for new residences in city centres. Um, one of the benefits I think of working in an environment where you have colleagues is it's a sounding board where you're talking about design and your sort of interchange of ideas. Um, one would hope that that doesn't get majorly affected, but I suspect. There are there will be instances where that does have an effect. Um, maybe more individual decision making rather rather than um, group decision making making would be uh, would be the norm. 
Now, of course, we are here to discuss the concept of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? It's uh, an, an individual that takes responsibility, um, stands, stands firm, and is a determined individual to make sure that the business that they are, that they are leading is both um, takes a positive attitude towards moving forward for the future and uh, takes the responsibility of uh, acting professionally and, uh, and effectively. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? I, I believe I am a very proactive, pragmatic individual, and I don't let the grass grow under my feet. But I'm a, I'm, an, I'm a reasonable person. Um, I'm prepared to accept responsibility for my business and the pros and cons that go with it. But at the same time, if somebody were to effectively cause a problem, then I'm quite you know quite quite happy to sit down and discuss it with them. Um, I'm not a person that would be bawling in public, but I'm certainly happy to uh, stand firm, stand my ground with both staff and clients are dependent on the, on the circumstances. So I'm a positive individual. And where would you say you derived your sense of leadership from and your positivity from? Did you have a particular role model or have you been shaped more by circumstance? I believe it's when I started my career after graduating. I, I worked in, uh, in the UK in a couple of small offices back in the late 70s. Um, where there was a moratorium and there wasn't a huge amount of work and I actually decided to work abroad and uh, finished up uh, in the early part of the 80s working uh, for um, a British practice in Nigeria based in Lagos uh, for two years and, I, and I, I still to this day work with the principles I learned with them. It was, it was a um, husband and wife partnership and they were, they were extremely well organised um, very effective, good design work, um, and I learned I learned an enormous amount, and I think that gave me the discipline. Working working in an environment such as, as as Africa generally, where at that particular time communication was almost non-existent, so you had to make decisions on the spot and and look very much at at um, solutions via first first principles so the team that was available at any one time would discuss it make a decision on the spot so we could just get on and build the buildings and i think that gave me that gave me my um strength of strength and determination of opinion on on how i believe decisions should be made i'm not somebody that sits and waits or goes away and thinks endlessly about decisions. I, I learned how to make them on the spot, and I guess that's, that's stayed with me. So, yes, definitely influenced by my early years in, in, in Africa. Now, when it comes to leadership, uh, one of the things that came, seems to keep cropping up is the most difficult aspect of it is dealing with conflict. Do you have a method for resolving conflict? To face it front on. Conflict between the parties is to sit down and discuss, um, not to, uh, to try very hard not to get uh, animated. 
um, first of all, isolate the problem that's at hand, discuss it, try and resolve it without conflict, without any further conflict evolving as a result. Now, unfortunately, that would be my, would be my normal opinion. Unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, I'd like to know what the next 12 months has in store for Building Design Workshop. I'm currently involved in looking at major projects in, in Africa, ironically, back to where I started almost. Um, but these are major projects for uh, a new business that I that I have alongside the Building Design Workshop, which is um, Global Design Consortium, which is a consortium of professionals um, uh, looking to fund and develop Af um, countries that are in need of new housing, a new infrastructure, and this is, um, to me, uh, new energy particularly, um, is in, and sustainable architecture is, is my, is my um, prime objective, and this gives me a great opportunity over the next 12 months and beyond. Well, James, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on the program today. It's been a pleasure to have you here. And, of course, we'll have to have you back at some point in the future. But for now, James, I think all that's left to say is goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye, and thank you for the opportunity. That was James Grew, owner and director of the Building Design Workshop. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, but blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at, the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Warnie got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So 
And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, and just in terms of... Because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in 
in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well in a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different, shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, 
But th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss, was coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on home soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it very different 
challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of. Uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed. Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re wearing red. So what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um 
you know, we're going to have our own uh, short form tournament that will rival the Big Bash, and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do it. Well this. surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.